Shut in in theaters November 11. Hear about the storm coming in? You probably shouldn't be up there all alone. My son, he's sick. I can't really move him. Hello? The only thing scarier than being alone. I keep hearing sounds, and it's not just in my head. Is realizing. You're talking about ghosts. You are not. I have to get out of here. Naomi Watts. Run! Run! Shut in. Rated PG-13. May be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters November 11th. I'm Eric Olson. Welcome to this special Halloween edition of the Lineup Podcast. With me, as always, is Dr. Clarissa Cole, forensic psychologist. It's Halloween. Time to bring on the creepy. And is anything creepier than child ghosts? While there's certainly a bevy of adult characters that give us the heebie-jeebies, it seems like most of us are more profoundly affected by the idea of a child entity. It may be the injustice of a young life tragically cut short, or it may be that kids bring out the natural caretaking instinct in us and paired with a feeling of dread, it's a combo that's hard to reconcile. But there's no doubt that the idea of an undead little one that likes to make contact with those on the other side of the veil is inordinately chilling. In fact, many very successful Hollywood portrayals live on in infamy due to the component of corrupted youth. There's Poltergeist, The Shining, and The Ring are prime examples. I mean, it's no wonder with their weird mix of innocence and malevolence that ghost children play such a large part in the genre of horror. Right, Eric? Shudder! Shudder! I am <laughs> shuddering as we speak! So child ghosts are extra creepy. Perhaps no kitty spirit is more documented and real, quote-unquote, than that of a young girl named Lily who wanders the halls of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in Weston, West Virginia, looking for a playmate. Lily has interacted with dozens, perhaps even hundreds of people, making herself known to visitors in several ways, including interacting with a menagerie of toys set out in the room dedicated to her memory. Lily's room is a cheery yellow, one of the brightest in the building, although the peeling walls and broken windows remind you that no living soul occupies this space, and the iron bars on the windows are a stark reminder of the bygone realities of asylum life. The room is stocked with a variety of toys, including a pink and white music box with a miniature ballerina turning point to a tinkling lullaby when the box is opened. The music box sometimes decides to play on its own. Ooh additional chills. Other items, such as baby dolls and plastic bouncy balls, are scattered about the room. These toys, set out as an invitation to play, have been known to move by themselves or in response to requests. Lily seems to delight in these ghostly playdates, and visitors often hear her giggles, equal parts sweet and spine-tingling, echoing down the hall. It sounds like, too, that asylum guides have developed sort of a special protective bond with this little girl's spirit, demanding that she be treated with kindness and respect. Uh, Lily supposedly remembers and favors frequent visitors, interacting with them in specific ways. Uh, Param paranormal investigator Aaron Salser has investigated the asylum over a dozen times, and he says one of Lily's favorite games involves the music box and flashlights. During a recent session, Aaron asked Lily if she remembered him, and if so, to please make herself known. 
He placed flashlights in different areas of the room, set up so that a slight twist on the top would turn them on or off. Aaron wound the music box and began asking questions. A flashlight turned on, indicating Lily was there. As the music slowed, the flashlight dimmed, only to return to full brightness when the music box was wound again. This occurred several times throughout the session. When Aaron asked if Lily was making it happen, he got a positive response. The correlation between the music box and the flashlight was so consistent that Aaron had no doubt Lily was manipulating it. Now, local historian Shelley Bailey has also encountered Lily several times, leaving small gifts for her. One time she offered Lily a box of Cracker Jacks, which then seemed to move on its own. She heard the distinct sounds of a box opening and crunching coming from the same area. A captured EVP politely said, thank you for the snacks. Shelly and her companions also played a game of catch with Lily using a plastic ball that bounced back and forth for almost 45 minutes. Wow, that is persistent, even for a child ghost. Yes, it is, right? Bouncy ball. never pay attention that long. 45 minutes. This is a child who was not ever subjected to the internet or electronic devices, I'm guessing. Yes, the, the, what the average attention span is like, how many seconds? It's, it's pretty bad these days. What? What are you talking about? See? <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And yet, Clarissa, for all of that, Lily's human biography is ambiguous at best. Legend has it that Lily was a little girl who spent all or most of her short, sad life inside the walls of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Some believe she was dropped off at the hospital like an unwanted stray by parents who couldn't or wouldn't care for her. Another story has it that she was born at the hospital shortly after her mother was committed, taken in and cared for by hospital staff until she died tragically of pneumonia at age nine. After her death, her spirit remained inside the asylum tragically the only home she had ever known where did the facts quote unquote of the lily stories come from very interesting according to a 2010 episode of the tv show ghost stories psychic tammy wilson was the first to discover the spirit of a small child named lily on a tour of the asylum the girl was about nine years old wearing a white dress her mother first name starting with the letter e an only child of a prominent family from England was brought to the hospital already pregnant. And it sounds like her family was eager to be rid of her. He was told her parents were killed in an accident and couldn't come back for her. She had to remain at the asylum where she gave birth. Both mother and daughter lived the remainder of their days at the asylum. According to the producers of Ghost Stories, patient records from the 20s did show that a woman with a first name beginning with E was admitted to the hospital while pregnant and later gave birth, possibly to a girl, possibly Lily. Hmm. Although I am betting that there were quite a few uh, women during the 20s that were, were put in asylums for, for being pregnant out of wedlock. And, and E is, a, is actually kind of a common letter for, for names to begin with, um, Elizabeth, et cetera. So that's it's very interesting. Ellen, Emily. Yeah. Oh, gosh, there's so many. Emmeline. Um, but anyway, uh, there's, there's another Lily tale that asserts that she was indeed born at the hospital to a mother who couldn't care for her. So very similar. Um, beloved by the staff, Lily lived her short life inside the walls of Tella until her death at age nine from complications of pneumonia. But the most detailed origin story of all appeared on the Internet in October of 2009. 
It said in 1863, a woman named Gladys Ravensfield, abandoned by her husband, was admitted to the hospital after being savagely and repeatedly raped by a group of soldiers. Gladys was not only traumatized by the assault, but also found herself pregnant. Taken to Trans-Allegheny, she slipped deeper into madness, rocking robotically back and forth for hours. Gladys eventually gave birth to an infant girl who survived only a short while. Mother and daughter still roam the halls. But what's fascinating about this version of Lily's story is how quickly it spread and was taken as fact. You see, the author, Stephen Wagner, about Dotcom's Paranormal Guide, created it for a promotion that invited bloggers to create a short fictional story about a ghost at the asylum to help promote a Ghost Adventures live Halloween event. I actually remember that. Oh, I do too. I do too. It was amazing. It was a very complex operation. It was. I mean, they, they, they were there for like seven hours. I mean, the, but I thought the story was real. Um, the, the story spread like wildfire across the internet as an actual historical account. It just, but it was made up in 2009. It just shows you that a story, a really good story, has its own weight and heft and logic. And many times a story becomes more important than A, the facts, or B, the person telling it. And it's a, it's a meme-type mentality, and it's really interesting that these ideas, that these thoughts, if you can call a story a thought or an idea, seem to almost have a will of their own and force themselves via viral spread that is made so easy now with the Internet, uh, and, and they get out there. It's very much like Slender Man, is it not? Yes. Well, it reminds me, too, of what we were talking about with Bobby Mackey's in the, the last podcast that we did. Uh, you know, talking about the story of Johanna, it's somewhat similar in that there isn't a whole lot of historical basis for that, if any at all. Absolutely. You are right. And as we were putting together the America's Most Haunted book, going to 10 different haunted locations, we ran into that a number of times where there's a really forcefully held, very fervently believed tale or tales associated with these places. And when you really dig into the historical basis, a lot of them simply aren't true. And yet, the activity that's associated with that tale very much seems to be real. Where is the truth, of any, in Lily's story? Are the slivers of fact intermingled with these elaborate accounts? Did she die at the asylum? Did she live there? Did she ever exist? Myth or mystery? What does remain is the evidence, the accounts, the EVPs, all suggesting that a young female child ghost who goes by the name of Lily, or at least answers to the name of Lily, does roam the halls of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, making her shy and yet playful self known to visitors who come to meet her. Who or what is this spirit? Was she somehow willed into existence by the psychic who first discovered her? Is she a thought form created by the visitors and staff who expect her to be there? Is she a figment of their collective imagination? Is she a quote-unquote real spirit who has assumed Lily's identity? Most troubling, is she a non-human entity pretending to be an innocent child for some nefarious purpose. I can't imagine what that might be other than some form of possession or influence over someone. I haven't really heard reports of that and generally everything that relates to Lily in terms of 
people's interactions appears to be positive, or at least not negative. She does appear to function at least as the person, the ghost of the person that she pretends to be. But I am fascinated, Clarissa, by the underlying psychological aspects of this. Could you go into that a little bit, please? Yeah, well, I've been thinking a lot about that, you know, ever since reading this story the, the first time and thinking about Bobby Mackey's. And with Bobby Mackey's, you know, Johanna wasn't a child, but she was pregnant. And there, there are all these associations with children. And when it comes to Trans Allegheny Asylum, I was thinking that infusing the idea of a playful child entity into a place like that, I think that makes everything that happened there more tolerable. You know, I mean, the, the abuses to adult and child patients alike was just unconscionable. And letting the reality of all that suffering sink in has got to be pretty overwhelming. But if there exists a child ghost like Lily, who is willing to play and be amused, it adds a lightness to the gruesome history of the place. It, it's like she's inherited an outpouring of human kindness and serves as a sort of purveyor of absolution for the atrocities of our ancestors. Very interesting concept. I hadn't thought of that at all. So do you think this is going on subconsciously among people who attend there, uh, the people who work there, the guides and whatnot? Is this some, something that is coming together in, in the crucible of this spirit, Lily? Uh, does In her mind, does that make her quote-unquote real? Or is she a figment of people's collective consciousness? How does that work? from a neurological standpoint in your mind? I would say that it's, I think she definitely serves a purpose, you know, for the people that work there and are there all the time and, and even the people that come to visit. And it's not dissimilar from a lot of accounts that you hear um, at Alcatraz, you know, place, you know, places that were also uh, sites of vast human suffering. It seems like in order to be able to stay there and be there every day, you have to have a, a sort of, uh, you know, something to put this off on, these heavy, heavy feelings. And usually it has to do with either a cantankerous or playful spirit, like the Birdman of, of Alcatraz kind of is, or something like Lily. I, I think she serves a purpose in lightening the mood of a place that was known to, to have horrible abuses of, of, of patients. And not that they meant to, but that was the treatment of the time, and that's what occurred. Yeah, so let's back up a little and talk about the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, previously known as the Weston State Hospital or the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane. I'm telling you, this place would be intimidating even without the ghosts. Its monumental main structure, the largest hand-cut stone masonry building in North America, divides 242,000 square feet over four floors. It's a staggering 1,296 feet long, is outfitted with 921 windows and 906 doors. Wow, that would be a lot of window washing <laughs> and door <laughs> insulating, as far as I'm concerned. A 200-foot-tall clock tower stretches up from the center like a hand reaching to God. The walls are two and a half feet thick, dense enough wow. to muffle the screams of even the most tormented soul, alive or dead. And this did not arise in a vacuum. 
the way it came to be was in the wake of a reformist wave that propelled across the land by remarkable mental health crusader Dorothea Dix, the Virginia General Assembly allocated the princely sum of $125,000, boy, that was a lot of money back then, to build the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in the early 1850s, purchasing 269 acres along the West Fork River opposite downtown Weston. Dr. Thomas Kirkbride, whose thinking dominated the physical design of asylums and care for the mentally ill in the United States and Europe for half a century, was hired as an advisor. So this is really a cutting-edge place. Renowned architect Richard Swoden Andrews designed the Gothic Tudor blue sandstone structure following the Kirkbride plan, which is long wings in a shallow V formation, arranged and echelon, I like all these <laughs> architectural terms, and echelon meaning staggered, so that all patients had access to unobstructed sunlight and fresh air. The building itself was meant to be a special apparatus for the care of lunacy, supported by highly improved and tastefully ornamented grounds. Well, Miss Psychologist, I'm sure you know an awful lot about the history of institutions. What are your thoughts on the Kirkbride plan and the efficacy of those buildings as they were put together in the 19th century? Did they work? Uh, well, I think that the, the idea behind Kirkbride's plan, if it had been executed the way Kirkbride intended it for, for it to be, I think it would have been amazing. I, I think it is revolutionary. Before that, uh, if if mental health patients were ever let out of their family's sight, you know, kept in basements and whatnot, they were put in asylums that were dark and dingy and, and people were not cared for, were not kept up. So his idea of making it where they all had fresh air, they all had sunlight with, you know, big windows in their rooms and, and that he treated it as sort of an egalitarian society is what he envisioned, where they had their own choices and, and freedom. It's it's really an amazing thing that I think he was trying to do for the mental health system in this country. He was very, very cutting edge. He was a humanist, and he was the very first doctor in the United States, States to recognize mental illness as a disease that could potentially be cured. And he believed that those afflicted were not disabled from appreciating books, nor from enjoying many intellectual and physical comforts. And with institutionalization central to his plan, he sought to create an, as you said, egalitarian environment where patients could be treated with dignity, compassion, and respect. So given what was going on and the quote-unquote care for the mentally or emotionally disturbed or disabled in the U.S. And, and around the world at the time, which was basically locking them up hiding them away, punishing them, this really, really was a big deal. And I'm sure early on, before things became too crowded, which seems to be the bane of all institutions, they're, they're almost doomed by their own success. Well, it's working with all these people. Let's put in a whole ton more, and it'll only get better. Construction began in 1858 on that main structure, known as the Kirkbride Building, but came to a screeching halt when the Civil War broke out in April of 1861. Border State, Virginia was deeply divided culturally and economically. Most people in the western part of the state were Appalachian mountain folk. 
not plantation owners who had little need of slaves and were generally unable to afford them anyway. In June of 1861, Virginia officially seceded from the Union, throwing itself into the bloody struggle. West Virginia then seceded from Virginia, remaining with the Union. The war literally marched into Weston on June 30th, 1861, when the 7th Ohio Infantry, led by Colonel Erastus Bernard Tyler, all of those Civil War generals had three names. Have you ever that noticed that? That's a great name, by the way. Erastus. Love it. Colonel Erastus Bernard Tyler. And boy, he <laughs> didn't just come into town. He swept into town, ostensibly to round up Confederate sympathizers. Haha, <laughs> but Tyler's underlying motive was revealed when he sent the trusted Captain List and two armed soldiers to the Western Branch of the Exchange Bank of Virginia, where they seized $27,000, that's over half a million today, in gold coins being stored in the bank vault for the purpose of covering asylum construction costs. The banker, Robert McClandish, summoned to open the vault, couldn't dissuade Captain List from his appointed mission, but he did negotiate to retain over $2,000 already owed to creditors. The bulk of the cash was sent to Wheeling, where it helped fund establishment of the new state of West Virginia. All right, sadly, once the place was open and started having some success, as we mentioned, one thing led to another, and, and really the curse of all successful institutions, it seems like, was that it became gradually over time more and more crowded and eventually really, really severely overcrowded. And as we have learned from all different kinds of animals, not just humans, when you compress people down into a space that is much smaller than they need to function and to have a little personal space, things get very ugly very, very quickly. On top of that, some of the treatments specifically for mental illness really veered off into a very ugly sort of physical realm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it yeah, it, it was interesting because before uh, this era in the, I, I would say it started in the mid-1800s, before that time period, mental illness was seen as a weakness of character. It was seen as a disruption of the humors. It was seen as a lack of, of proper religion or upbringing. It was not considered something that was physiological in origin. But when you you know looked at the cases of, uh, do you know about Phineas Gage by any chance? I know the name. I can't recall his import. Okay. Well, Phineas Gage was just a kind of unremarkable guy uh, born in 1860, and he was a railroad construction foreman. So, you know, he wouldn't have been remembered for anything else except there was a terrible accident on this railroad construction that essentially shot a railroad tie, a spike, through his skull, clear through his skull, uh, the bottom part of his jaw and out through the top of his uh, top of his cranium. Now, this you would think this would kill a person. Uh, and it was simply miraculous that it didn't. There are actually photographs of a doctor touching his two fingers in the middle of Phineas Gage's head. One finger coming from the bottom, one finger coming from the top. Ooh. Now, yeah, it, yeah, very, it, only for, not for the faint of hearts, put it that way. But uh, Gage didn't die, but when he healed, he wasn't Gage anymore. 
He was uh, very disinhibited, um, body uh, inappropriate. Uh, he his personality completely changed. So he went from being a successful, nice railroad foreman to essentially being a, a madman, just out of his mind. And this was one of the first ideas that medicine got that mental illness was not something outside of physiology. That really changed mental health treatment as we knew it. You know, it was no longer just a weakness of your character. Maybe this was caused by an injury to the brain itself. So medical professionals started, you know, kind of experimenting after Gage happened. And by the, you know, mid to late 1800s, they had started treatments. Uh, the electroshock therapy came in and eventually the prefrontal lobotomy became a treatment because they knew they could change your personality and they were hoping to cure mental illness, but that's not exactly what happened. So a, a prefrontal lobotomy is where you take a small, uh, thin ice pick like, uh, tool and you hammer it through the orbital socket. So in the corner of one's eye, there is a space ostensibly where this tool would go through and they would tap through the back of your uh, orbital socket because the, the bone is very thin there and go into the brain, into the frontal cortex where they would essentially sever part of the frontal cortex ostensibly from the thalamus. And so patients that came in that were completely violent and unmanageable and suffering from horrible hallucinations and delusions all of a sudden would become very, very manageable. So it was hailed as sort of a miracle treatment for a while there. It was it was sort of a addition by subtraction in a sense. It, yeah, they they changed their personalities what they thought were for the better, but they were actually taking away their personality. They were taking away everything that made that patient who they were. And they would stare endlessly at a wall, for instance, or they would play card games that made no sense, just holding the cards in their hands for hours staring. They became like living vegetables. And there were patients at, you know, and, and Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum is where uh, Freeman, Walter, Dr. Walter Freeman practiced. And he did upwards of 2,000 lobotomies in his career. As I understand it, in one year, 1952, he performed 228 of these lobotomies. He was a lobotomizing fool, my friends. That it's so tragic. Uh, you know, looking at it now, it seems so barbaric. But I really do think that back in the day, they did think they were helping people. But it, part of it, too, was to make the patients more manageable for the staff. And that's just unconscionable. I, I don't understand that. Sure. Well, you always have practicalities. And again, when things start getting very crowded, then yeah. then you have a lot more reason to do things that end up being not necessarily geared to the benefit of the patients. Well, speaking of Trans-Allegheny itself, besides all these victims of lobotomies who are hanging around being rather um, slack-jawed ghosts, as far as I'm concerned, there are also the tortured moans of the wounded, heavy-booted heavy footfalls, misty forms, and ominous shadows that permeate the Civil War section of the building, so where people were treated that portion of the building in the Civil War was a hospital, and that's where they're hearing this various activity. 
And the upper floors of the building are not nearly as vacant as they seem. The spirits of at least two vicious murderers remain, trapped in an earthly purgatory for their crimes. Slewfoot, a cunning psychotic, murderously lashed out in a lavatory. The phantom of an even more depraved, unnamed multi-murderer haunts the dungeon-like seclusion cells. Some of the most despondent asylum patients thought suicide a way out. But sadly, ironically, they too remain stuck indefinitely between this world and the next. Their desperation seeps from the walls like water from broken pipes. Well, back to our original topic, the child ghost Lily. Any final thoughts on her existence, her reality, her interaction with we humans? I, you know, I wonder if, you know, I, I, you know that I'm somewhat of a skeptic, but if there is such a thing as ghosts and, and particularly child ghosts, I, I would like to think that they would have less of, uh, I guess, the restriction of an adult ghost that they might really crave interaction with the living if they were aware um, and, and couldn't, couldn't leave that place. So there's a part of me that kind of does hope that she is real and that people are caring for her in a way that they would have liked to have cared for some of those patients in the past. Well, people are definitely interacting with something that goes by the name Lily and presents herself, itself, as a little girl. The Lineup Podcast is a joint production of The Lineup, America's Most Haunted, and The Criminal Code. To be found, respectively, at the-line-up.com, americas-most-haunted.com, and thecriminalcode.com. Our theme music is composed and performed by Absofacto. Listen in at absofacto.com. That's A-B-S-O-F-A-C-T-O.com. Stay spooky, everybody. Shut in in theaters November 11th. Hear about the storm coming in? You probably shouldn't be up there all alone. My son, he's sick. I can't really move him. The only thing scarier than being alone. I keep hearing sounds, and it's not just in my head. Is realizing. You're talking about ghosts. You are not. I have to get out of here. Naomi Watts. Run! Run! Shut in. Rated PG-13. May be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters November 11th.